When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the final word. Before we start the episode today, a reminder of our partnership with Wisden Cricket Monthly. It's a new year, but we've got uh, the same deal that we had last year where you can get a digital subscription for very, very cheap and even cheaper if you tell them you're a final word listener. Adam. Yes, new year, new decade, but same fantastic Wisdom Cricket Monthly, the best cricket magazine in the world. We talk about it every week because we love it. We write there, we enjoy reading it month to month. And if you go to the very simple, very, very simple to remember website, bit.ly forward slash WCM finals, that's bit.ly. I'm sure you know what a bit.ly is if you're listening to a podcast. So bit.ly forward slash WCM final. You'll be redirected to the Pocket Mags page, which is especially been set up for the final word. You can get on there and pick up a six-month digital subscription for $5.99. That's in pounds or about 10 bucks in Australian dollars. That's an absolute steal. So for the first half of 2020, you can get the magazine for roughly one quid per edition or you know a couple of bucks, not even that. What a steal. It is a steal and many people have been signing up as well. Uh, Andrew Miller's a new columnist as of issue 27. Issue 28 will be out later this month that answers the big questions that cricket needs to confront, i.e. the state of play as cricket starts a new decade. So the big uh, stories being run, the big questions being discussed, lots of other stuff as well that'll be in that issue. Um, go to the link and check it out. Yeah, some of the best cricket writers in the world. Lawrence Booth is always there, as is Phil Walker, Joe Harmon, Lizzie Ammon on County Cricket, all the rest. That'll be in addition 28, the big questions cricket needs to answer. Wisdom Cricket Monthly, partnering with the final word, bit.ly forward slash WCM final. That's where you go. Get down there now. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail, had to fall just for one. This is the final word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. It's January. It's a new year. It's our first episode of a new year. It's, it's my last episode for a couple of weeks because I'm going on holiday. I'm actually on holiday. I've already started being on holiday. But, and I was like, I'm not going to do any cricket stuff for three weeks, but I am going to do this episode because it's right at the start. So it's barely even cheating. And then I'm going to be away, Adam, and Daniel Norcross will be filling in uh, over the next couple of eps. Yeah, people will be well familiar with Dan's voice, not only on TMS, but of course, uh, one of the closest friends, if not the closest friend of the Final Word community, of course, he's been part of Nerd Pledge, he's been a guest on the show a handful of times, so he'll sit with me in his manor in South London and, and we'll and we'll, uh, and we'll do our thing for a couple of weeks while you're having a, a well-earned breather at the end of the Australian Test Summer, which concluded a couple of nights ago. So let's start there, Jeff. It was uh, the third test of Australia and New Zealand. We've got tons to get through on the show, but as always, we like to deal with the Test match first in keeping with the tradition we've built up over the last six years. It was a, a weird time, Adam, being there, weird at the SCG, not only because you weren't there, which was pretty peculiar in itself, um, you headed back home to get ready for impending fatherhood. What, are, we, are we five weeks out now? We are, we, we've just entered week 36, which I gather means we're a couple of weeks away from what they call full term. So we're, um, we're ticking over, we're painting rooms, we're, we're assembling furniture, we are buying 
all sorts of gear off Facebook. What do they call it? Facebook Marketplace to and stuff. I'm sure we'll never. I'm sure um, stuff will never touch. I'm certain, but um, we're we're overcompensating. But we can't wait. Uh, Rachel's nearly on mat leave, and um, yes, and I'm still doing my thing. But we'll wind back soon enough, and well, I'm sure it'll be you and Daniel Norcross for a while when the baby arrives, and I need to completely <laughs> check out myself. But uh, yes, it's uh, yeah probably in the next three or four weeks or something like that. It'll be here. Good Lord. Well, brace yourself. Um, that's what New Zealand had to do as well in Sydney. But it, it, was, a, it was a weird test match because no one cared. You know, the, the focus mm. wasn't there and nor should it have been. Um, I felt weird just being there and watching it. I, I didn't really want to write about it. The, you know, the half the country was on fire at the same time as this test match was going on. The, the smoke was clearly visible in Sydney, especially on the, you know, from the second day onwards. The reminders were ever-present and the, the carnival was going on, but in a, a listless sort of series the way it has been where every test has played out exactly the same way. Australia's batted first, made a big score slowly. Um, Manus has made a truckload of runs and then New Zealand have fallen over a couple of times in reply. Yeah, I thought you captured that really well in your piece on day one, Jeff. The, uh, look, it... It felt ridiculous playing a, a test match or having a test match played with, with a natu- natural disaster going on around the country and especially on those first couple of days when the, the wind and the heat was at its absolute worst. But I suppose cricket can be a force for good in, in moments like this. We saw, of course, uh, when the Boxing Day tsunami occurred in 2004, there was a, a truckload of money raised uh, in support of the relief effort. And, and that was the case this week. I really enjoyed a, a lot of people uh, putting a lot of things on auction. Russell Jackson, of course, who's a, a friend of ours and a former colleague of ours who donated a uh, you know a precious bat of his which he got signed by 10 test captains as a kid he put that on offer and, and a lot of people uh, got on board and bid and of course the the players were integral to that effort um, donating their playing shirts I think they raised four times as much as they made the target at the start of that process the McGrath Foundation working with the bushfire relief effort in their own fundraising so even though it was an incongruous thing to have a have a game of cricket taking place in the middle of a disaster at least it was used to get money where it's needed most in in some part. And I I think we should make a point uh, of saying, you know, Shane Warne is someone who we may sometimes take the piss out of on this show, but um, Shane Warne putting up his baggy green cap for auction is a a pretty good effort, pretty good gesture. Yeah, and it's it's currently running at half a million dollars Australian, uh, which is considerable when it's more than Bradman's. I know Bradman had several baggy greens because that was different um, when he played. They got a different cap on each tour so there have been multiple Bradman baggy greens uh, over the yeah. years but that, that way, I think the most recent one went for 460 grand or something like that so Warney's is, is at half a million I don't know whether Warney had more than one baggy green he probably did I, I suppose given when he played it wasn't quite when he started rather it wasn't quite the mm. same reverence as it's held in now but, but that I reckon he might have only had one because he didn't wear it that much and then he made that yeah. um, note yeah. himself where he said that you know he was wearing the white floppy most of the time in the field didn't really yeah. like the Steve Waugh baggy green sort of sentimentality and, and didn't wear it um, nearly as much as plenty of others certainly didn't wear it at Wimbledon when he had the Oakley cap on <laughs> well that's right and you can sort of tell that from the photo that he um, he had a photo in front of the, the pavilion uh, when he put it on offer and it doesn't look anywhere near beaten up as someone like say to pick oh, Josh Hazelwood's Josh Hazelwood, yeah, Shane that, that, does. That's, that's the one I was going to cite as well Hazelwood and Starks have both been battered and bruised and you can understand why given that they've been uh, integral in, in so many Australian victories over the last five years or so when they uh, celebrate that in the, in the usual Australian fashion by drenching it in beer so um, yep. but, but yes you're spot on uh, well played uh, Shane Warne for uh, you know giving away something that 
is unique. I mean, you, you can't get that back unless he was to buy it back some years later. He'll, he'll never sort of have that in his possession again. And I know how mm. close uh, these Australian players uh, hold these caps to them. Um, there's a fantastic uh, book by Jesse Hogan, which came out over the Christmas period for Cap and Country, and, and does a great job of detailing how special uh, the caps are to these players. So, um, mm. so yes, if you if you want a bid for Shane Wants Cap. <laughs> I'm sure you can do so. If you're listening to the final word and want a bit of a shame, wants cap, yeah. probably not the sort of clientele we normally have listening to a podcast. But you know, uh, go, go for gold. In one minute, you're signing up for your discount ten dollar Wisdom Cricket Monthly subscription, <laughs> and in the next, you're splashing out five hundred and twenty grand for for Warnie's yeah. headgear. Um, it, it may not be the case, but the, the the Test match really was only notable for Manus Lavaskarne making his maiden double hundred, um, two hundred and fifteen. He ended up with, and, and what I particularly liked about that, in a, a nerd pledge sort of sense, is that Justin Langer also made two hundred and fifteen against New Zealand, um, and Steve Smith made. <laughs> 215 is his yes. first double hundred. So, you and know, Lord, so yeah. Manus's uh, idol, his batting idol, and also his mentor, the one who's brought him into the team and, and made him the player he is, both got the same number, which was a, a nice little um, synchronicity. Yeah, I can't. Well, we'll be doing some nerd pledge before the first break today, and I, and I can't wait to uh, see some 215s rolling in. Look, it's uh, the end of the summer of Marnus. He fell nine runs short of overtaking Wally Hammond's 905 runs in five tests in 1928-29, which has always stood as the gold standard a couple of years ago when Steve Smith was plundering England for 750-plus runs, whatever it worked out to be, uh, in that series at home. You know, he absolutely dominated England and ended up, you know, short of 800, when you consider that Marnus has gone 100 further than that, mm. four centuries, three of them were over 150, one of them, of course, being a double ton to tick off that box. Almost the only thing left for him was uh, to complete twin tons, and he you know, didn't come too far away from that at Perth. He made a century in the first innings and 60-odd in the second, and, and the yeah. same was uh, the case here at Sydney, where he got out when they were going for the smash at the end before the declaration. But had he not got out there and batted for another 20 or 30 minutes, it, it could have been a, a double ton and, and a twin ton. So uh, I'm sure that's something he'll uh, he'll um, he'll he'll collect sooner rather than later because as he's shown through the course of these five Test matches and really all the way back to Lords, he's class, uh, he's indefatigable, he's relentless, he's got powers of concentration only really really equaled by Stephen Smith in terms of what I've seen in recent years covering the game and uh, that means it's going to be probably a lot of fun to watch him and cover him and tick off those statistical milestones. Jeff, I'm sure it wasn't lost upon you that he overtook Smith in terms of the best since Bradman marker for averages now that he's played more than 20 test innings. That counts as well. Yeah, it does. It, it, it's in the... Um the Adam Voges early days bracket where, you know, th- things can change over time <laughs> with the, the the length of career that he'll have, that, that will probably stabilise. But, yeah, the, the bulk of runs is significant. He had one score that was less than a half century um, over the, this Australian summer, which is the same as what Smith did in England, obviously. The, the mm. toughness of the conditions in the bowling was, was much less onerous in sure. Australia with some, some overwhelmed teams and some pretty batting-friendly surfaces, but you've still got to be able to do it. And, uh, and that's what he's been able to do. So, you know, that got Australia to 4.54. And, and then New Zealand did, as they've done all summer, really. They've been disappointing. They had a remodelled team. Uh, they had a, a lot of illness. Williamson missed out. Glenn Phillips came in. He was surfing the day before the game and, and somehow managed to answer his phone and 
got called over to, to make a streaky 50. Jeet Raval was punted from the side for having a dire run. What was it, about 66 runs in his last nine innings or thereabouts? Something like that, yeah. Um, averaging eight and got recalled to bat at first drop when he'd been an opener because he couldn't um, knock off Tom Blundell, who had made 100 at Melbourne. But So it was a pretty patchwork sort of team and you know Ross Taylor mm. wasn't able to do much in terms of making runs, he did go past Stephen Fleming for the, the most ever runs, test runs for New Zealand. So he's obviously been a wonderful player, but hasn't really had an influence on this series. And, and all in all, you know, bundled out for 256 New Zealand and then for 136 in the last innings. And um, they, they've had a pretty abject tour when, you know, but people were excited coming into this series saying they might compete. Um, I was pessimistic about it and uh, ultimately pessimism one on this occasion sadly yeah 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 it did look let's um look we, we kind of said it all last week about new zealand being underwhelming i was pleased to see them not throw in the towel again i mean it, it's 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 small positives we're finding here but they did again restrict australia on that second day they didn't let them get away and then they batted quite nicely i mean jeet raval you mentioned him you know 30 odd but expectations were so managed uh, you know mm. glenn phillips on taboo uh, it, it, of course it didn't come off and i don't want to over index this but it felt as though for a long period of this test match new zealand were going to hang in there i think they found one in todd astle as well i don't want to uh, again overdo it but he bowled with yeah. sort of serious loop and dip and um, he has a fantastic wrong on him which was good enough to um, pick up Labashane, wasn't it oh, in the second oh, no, sorry it might have been Joe Burns rather in, in the second mm. dig when Burns really needed um, well didn't really need big runs but it would have been handy to have finished the summer with yeah. a major score given that he only made well he only made bulk runs uh, in that first innings of the summer against Pakistan at Brisbane when he yeah. was down three short of a century but yeah they did hang tough and they did what we expect them to do with the ball uh, not least uh, Matt Henry who bowled really nicely on that second day with a broken thumb imagine how much that must have been throbbing when he was running in to bowl uh, yeah. and Neil Wagner did did as Neil Wagner usually does and was successful at, at different intervals perhaps more so with the uh, with the newer ball than he was with the older uh, on this occasion so Look, um, they leave Australian shores uh, having suffered a you know a, a terrible defeat, which reminds us that sometimes the rankings are a bit a bit blotchy because it's over a four yeah. rolling cycle. They're, they're not a perfect indicator of where a team necessarily is at. Australia have had a wonderful uh, period right now. It's probably more like if you were measuring it on like a heat chart, Australia would be perhaps the, the strongest <laughs> side in the world right now other than India but they're still number five in the test rankings due to who they play when in the four-year cycle and all the rest of it so it might take a while for that to even out if this Tim Payne side continues on the trajectory they've been on for the last sort of six months or so both at home and also in England which was a, a pretty impressive performance away from home. So the other thing to note is, as you mentioned, Ross Taylor overtaking uh, overtaking Fleming. Stephen Fleming as the leading run scorer, an emotional press conference reflecting on his mentor, Martin Crow, which was a sort of a lovely touch. Ross Taylor has averaged 51 since he got his eyes fixed up after the 2015 day-night test match, which, I mean, he's had a remarkable run regardless but if you look at his one day numbers and his test numbers post eye operation you kind of think that maybe he would have a lot more runs for New Zealand if he had had that <laughs> if he'd been able to see earlier yeah, I mean, it's not an unreasonable point that he's done better over the age of 32 or whatever it is than yeah. he did before that age. And, yeah, it's, it's a quirky one, but still he's um, got plenty of cricket left in him yet, I, I reckon, even though he, he didn't go especially well here. He got an absolute rip-snorter from Patrick Cummins in the second dig. Cummins didn't really clean up apart from Melbourne throughout the summer, but still finished with a bowling average of, like, 22 across the five test mm. matches because he was so frugal. And then there's Nathan Lyon, who, who'd never taken a five-wicket bag at the SCG, which is traditionally considered 
considered to be the best place to bowl spin in Australia. Whether that's true or not, that's debatable, but it carries that reputation. Uh, and he's gone and done it twice. He, he picked up a, a bag of five in the first and, and finished the test with five in the second when New Zealand yeah. kind of fell over and, and were checking out. Colin de Granholm's dismissal perhaps um, emphasised that best when they couldn't hold on to get to the fifth day, which was frustrating because I think they'd done enough to at least get it to a fifth day, but they, they did fold and get the early flight home and, and Lyon capitalised accordingly. Yeah, well, you know, 10 wickets in the match for Lyon is is a big one as well. Where was it in Bengaluru, was it, where he took eight for in the first innings and, and wasn't Nine able to... Um, yeah, wasn't able to close out a 10-wicket match in the second, so he's he, he did been it able once to pick off he? as well. Yeah, he did it in Chittagong, but he'd never done it at home. I remember that yeah. uh, that that remarkable series he had against Bangladesh in 2017. He he, uh, he earned himself a ten wicket bag. But yeah, I reckon that might be this might and possibly no. He took twelve against India in in 2014 at Adelaide Oval with that seven wicket bag on on the final day, complementing five in the first. But this was a really kind of assured performance from Lyon. He finishes the the summer with 390 Test wickets. I think I'm right in saying, Jeff, that Mackay and Teeny is 391. So that'll be next on the list on the charge to 400 and, and really all things being equal he should pick up his 400th in Bangladesh in June. That Bangladesh tour was the development point really wasn't it of, of Lyon working out how to bowl in Asia and, and that bowling ugly thing that he talked bowl about ugly. and, and mm. being able to, to switch from the Australian mode um, which has served him so well and, and which he's yeah, able that, to switch back to. Yeah, that'll be really interesting, actually, when we're in Bangladesh later in the year. I can't wait for that. So hopefully it goes ahead. Um, I only say that because of the history of Australia trying to pull the plug on Bangladesh tours, which we've talked about a lot on the final word over the last 12 months or so. But assuming they do go over there, it'll be interesting to watch Lyon have to change modes because he talked to us at length in that 2017 tour about learning to skid the ball on, to hit the the flesh of the ball, if you like, instead of the seam. So, uh, and that served him really well in almost a Harath style of um, getting wickets with the ball not spinning and, and keeping almost a fraction low compared to what we expect from Lyon with his with his bouncy action. So, a bit more sidearm and, and all the rest of it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to um, seeing whether he can pick up that 400th wicket when he's in Bangladesh. And after that, who knows? Next year, home summer against India. Uh, and then, you know, you'd expect that he'll be uh, the number... Well, no, you wouldn't expect he will be the number one spinner when India come to town. And uh, really, I, I can't see any reason why he won't remain in that role for, for some years ahead. There doesn't seem to be anyone who's really nipping at the heels. Mitch Swepson didn't get the chance at Sydney, which, you know, suggests that, um, you know... that, that well, It suggests that he's the next in line, but would they even, you know, overlook him for Bangladesh in favour of Ashton Agar as a more control option? They did so in 2017 alongside Steve O'Keefe as the, the third spinning option. So, yeah, a few good problems to have for the Australian selectors in, in terms of the spin department when they go to Bangladesh. And it means on the wicket list, Lyon went past Ian Botham's 383 test wickets. He's level with Mackay and Tini with 390, so he's 16th all-time. Right. And uh, Kirtley Ambrose is next on 405, if you can get past that. 400 mark. Um, England and South Africa played out a much more interesting test match than Australia and New Zealand. They so, did. They um, did. I suppose that just, just historical allegiances meant we started the show with Australia, but we really should have been talking about this match instead. Yeah, I think there's going to come a time when we decide to talk about the Australian test match second, but um, uh, this this wasn't that. Look, there's a nice little link between the two, which I it'd be remiss of me not to mention before we get into the nitty-gritty of a, of a fantastic, fantastic test match at Newlands. Uh, and that's the front foot no ball botching uh, that we oh. see 
routinely. The, the Australian example first. James Pattinson bowled, I think it was six no balls in two overs, the sixth of which was a wicket. It was overturned retrospectively. The reason we know he bowled five others was because I think it was Channel 7 um, had their analytics team have a look at it and work out that he'd been overstepping consistently in the previous two overs. So, you know, Pattinson has to take responsibility for the front line, but equally... You know, I, I feel for the bowler in that scenario. If he's overstepping routinely, then he should have been called before. He should have made the adjustment. And when he did make the adjustment, I think they showed the next two overs he bowled, he was well behind the line with every delivery. So, yes, it's his responsibility, but um, it, it's also the umpires to play their role. And seeing as they've clearly stopped calling uh, front foot no balls in that central position, which we also saw in Newlands when Stuart Broad did it. So Broad uh, bowled a bunch of no balls. Uh, the, the camera was on the front line, and we were seeing it time and time again uh, from the England bowlers. It was Stokes especially and then periodically Broad, but, but he picked up mm. a wicket in the first innings, which was overturned. I think it was the next morning. I think well, it, was, it was in the same day in terms of uh, the day of the Test match, uh, respectively, and, um, and that, that drew plenty of attention as well. So the good news there, Jeff, is that after a lot of hectoring uh, from us and others, uh, they are trialling uh, the, the front yep. foot uh, technology upstairs in the, uh, in the West Indies Island one-day series that started yesterday in Barbados, I think it was. And what okay. do you know? There was... A, there was a front foot no ball called by the third umpire in the first innings of that game and and the world didn't turn in on itself it worked perfectly fine as we know it was always going to work fine so hopefully mm-hmm. this trial they've already had a trial earlier this year with that India were involved in I, I heard a whisper that the IPL might be looking at it as well for their competition uh, okay. in April and May so we're getting I think Jeff closer to a consensus that um, the days of the, the central umpire using or having responsibility for, for calling front foot no balls might nearly be behind us and these high profile examples uh, during the week might be the last handful well, might be amongst the last handful that we see which ultimately do nothing to further uh, the game or the umpire's reputations Imagine if we got to stop talking about it Imagine if we I never know, again I had know. to go through this rigmarole of, of you talking about the trial in 2016 and how they botched be it joyous. decided not to do it and all of the, the, <laughs> the unrealistic um, reasonings given for it. Imagine if, imagine if someone just hit a button when they saw someone. You don't even need to be an umpire. You, could be, you or I could do it. It'd just fish someone in from the press box and say, if they step over the line, press the buzzer. But this, kind of, yeah. this kind of reinforces the other point. Like We go back to the start of the summer with uh, umpire Gould um, not interpreting the technology correctly and we saw another instance of the, yeah. that with Dean Elgar. Whether, whether Dean Elgar hit that ball or not, I don't really care. The point is, is that if right. you if you took it away from the central umpire, um, or should I say the elite panel umpire, and and you invested in the technology, Tim Cutler made a great point on Twitter during the week. There's no need for them to even be at the ground. You could say we talked about finding efficiencies within cricket as far as flying people around the world and all the rest of it. I mean, is there any reason why that job couldn't be done centrally? Um, they they yeah. certainly do that in the football. I think the rugby league does that in the NRL. They have a, a bunker. The bunker. Yeah. I mean, and I know that, and I know that's not fail safe, and none of this is perfect. I don't want people hopping into us saying, "Well, there's mistakes in in with the way VAR is interpreted in Premier League and." and the mm. way that um, uh, the, the bunker works in NRL. And I'm, I'm sure that's the case, but at least this would reduce the need for the umpire to actually be there. And we can start, like I say, training up a, a new generation of specialist TV ups and, and part of their brief will be to, to view the front line. So, you know, let's keep pushing that. I will just say a lot of people in history have had bunkers and it hasn't necessarily worked out <laughs> for them that well. Uh, so, you know, be, bear that in mind. Um, there <laughs> may not be a road it, that you want to go down. Um, no. I, I also 
neglected to mention, I should have briefly mentioned before, I mean, it, it was one of the more junky hundreds of his career, but David Warner did make his 24th Test 100, thus equaling Greg Chappell, which is a, a pretty big deal um, as far as Australian batsmen go. So that, that leaves yep. him eighth on the list. But let's not get sidetracked into talking about Warner's second innings junk time hundreds at the SCG, which he loves. Oh, well, I, would, I, would just, I would just add that he batted really well. I mean, it was yeah, junk time 100, totally. But, I mean, he, he, uh, he batted really well. I, I watched that whole innings, and, um, and to his credit, Warner managed to, to finish the summer the way that he started it. He had a couple of leaner test matches to start the New Zealand series, but but um, managed to, to complete it, making the better part of 800 runs, so only 100 or so behind Labuschagne. The two of them, would you believe, and Andrew, Sam- Andrew Sampson pulled out this gem on SEN. Um, Labuschagne batted for 29 and a half hours during the, during the summer, and Warner batted for just shy of 29 hours. So, I mean, we've seen a lot of them on TV, put it that way. Right, this this England Test match. Now you watched it more closely than me, but I did follow yeah. uh, along the closing passages to give the very brief summary for not quite a thirty second one, but for those who weren't following along, <laughs> uh, England made two sixty nine, and everybody uh, absolutely shat all over them for being terrible batting side who just you know couldn't do anything on a decent batting track. They then turned around and bowled out South Africa for two twenty three, and suddenly everyone said, "Oh, maybe it's quite difficult to bat out there. It really looks like there's something in it for the bowlers." Um, England then piled on. 391 in the second innings Dom Sibley made his um, his maiden century but probably more notable for Ben Stokes' uh, ridiculous assault at the end he made 72 of 47 deliveries I just realised using the words Ben Stokes and ridiculous assault in the same sentence was probably not wise but there we go uh, 7 fours and 3 sixes and he got them a, a big lead with enough time left in the match that they just, just, just managed to bowl out South Africa, what, about five overs shy of batting out a draw on the fifth day um, with, yep. a, with a tremendous rear guard and then, and then a flurry of late wickets from Stokes as well. So it, it yep. was a test match that had everything that swung in every direction. Um, the, it, it made everybody eat their words a whole lot of times and it had some ridiculous standout performances, but um, you can probably yeah. tell us more. Oh, just that, um, well, yeah, 50 balls to spare, that, that was the mark. They won by 183 runs, but they really won by sort of 50 balls. Um, 50 deliveries yep. was was the amount that South Africa needed to do to bat out what would have been 150 overs, and a, an amazing effort to have achieved that. It would have been their second longest um, survival effort in the fourth innings, only behind Adelaide in, in 2012. So credit to the, the Proteus for uh, hanging in there, but... Yeah, I mean, this is a great test victory. Make no mistake, they had four players under the age of 22 in the side after being ravaged by that illness. I mean, we talked about New Zealand um, mm. losing Kane Williamson uh, and uh, Henry Nichols. Mitchell uh, Santner, I think, and Mitchell as well. Santner was already out. Yeah, I think Santner wouldn't yeah. have played anyway, but the other two... Yeah, I, I think that was being up. nice by saying he was feeling yeah. sick. <laughs> But the others who rocked up to the... Uh, I, well, I've just a, a quick uh, sidebar on this. How funny is it that in 2020, that cricket, being cricket, they, you know, instead of just assessing them at the hotel, like, no, no, we'll take them down for a net first and work out whether they're okay or not. <laughs> that was the case with... Um, speaking of um, pre-game routines, that, that's another reason why England were depleted. Rory Burns batted beautifully in the second innings at Pretoria mm. last week. He um, hurt himself. A lovely little move, by the way, to, to, to pass Joe Root and score in his pre in the uh, in the pre-test football game, and and, and um, really hurt himself. He's had an operation on his ankle. He's going to miss four months of cricket. Would you believe on something that looks so innocuous when you Jesus. watch the tape? But 
it highlights how depleted England were. And yes, when they were bowled out for 269 on day one, with I think five players getting a start, so five players making in excess of 30, none of them kicking on beyond 50, with, with the exception of Ollie Pope, that uh, who made an, an unbeaten half century, uh, doing a great job with the tail. There was a lot of reason to think that was perhaps one of their most disappointing batting performances on mm. a Cape Town surface, which is usually a road. And look, look, they, they, were, they were helped in their first bowling innings by that sizeable crack at one end, which both Broad and Anderson were able to take advantage of, not necessarily by hitting it all the time, but that indecision that, that a crack on, on that kind of line will mm. do to a side. They bowled superbly. Had um, Joffre Archer been fit, it's unlikely that Anderson would have played, would you believe? But Anderson, yeah. turning the clock back, taking five for 40, just a glorious performance. Broad set up the pins. Anderson knocked them down. Dom Bess, uh, you know, was brought in. I, I spoke to the, the coach of Somerset last week about his recall. Of course, Bess, the 22-year-old off-spinner who played two tests against Pakistan in 2018 at home. Uh, he's been totally in the wilderness. He was playing second team yeah. cricket for Somerset within six weeks of his second test match because Jack Leach is the principal spinner at Somerset and therefore mm. when you're only playing one sweeper, Bess has to go off and you know play what is sometimes glorified club cricket, second 11 county cricket due to the way they only play over sort of two or three days. And he's gone from there to a spin camp at the end of the season in Mumbai bowling with Rangana Harath and, and, and Richard Dawson. And because he was bowling so well on that camp, they're like, well, maybe we should take him as cover when all these players went down ill, including Jack Leach. Gets mm. his chance, and he, he didn't take a truckload of wickets. He took one in the first innings and one in the second, but he bowled at an economy rate of 1.98 across the test match, held up an end, allowed Broad and Anderson and Curran and Stokes to rotate through the end where there was the most trouble with that crack. They bowl out South Africa early on, on the third day with a you know a modest lead of 30 or 40 or, or thereabouts. And and for mine, that, that's where the best, most exciting passage of, of the test match started, which was England's second innings. I mean, it doesn't look like it on paper. Dom Sibley batting for you know, more than a day for a century. But the way that he and... Uh, he and Joe Denley knuckled down early on and that was supported by Joe Root later in the day who made a brisk 60-odd before um, getting a good one off the crack late in the day. It was wonderful, you know, wonderful test cricket, on, not because of how quick it went, but because of how slow it went. It was, you mm. need, England could not give it away. They could not throw away a first innings lead that was so hard fought having collapsed on day one or I say collapsed having not met the potential of the track on day one they needed to invest in that second innings there was no need to, to scamper along they they had enough time to declare on, on the fourth day and they, and they duly did after that um, that Stokes masterclass uh, when South Africa elected to, to wait five overs to take the second new ball, which was utter madness. Stoke got, Stokes got off to an absolute flyer and, and didn't let up at one stage. He was sort of on track for one of the fastest hundreds of all time before he got out, mm. rolling out to um, mid-on, I think it was. But yes, the, the, the beauty of the, the Dom Sibley innings was that he knew he had to be the rock upon which everything else formed in that second dig, didn't let it up and got to the stage where they were able to set um, South Africa 438, of course a very famous number, is South African cricket 438, the, that, that one day international chase way back when yeah. but, but and then and then yeah the, should have the, got the him in 50 innings. overs yeah, we, we did joke about that at the time. But, um, yeah, the fourth innings was no less captivating. Uh, so England didn't start particularly well. The track did flatten out. It got better to bat as, as the match went on. They were giving it absolutely everything to the point where Anderson was spent and couldn't go on any longer. Um, you know, they, they, they went for hour after hour after hour. Joe Root was patient, 
Um, I think he captained really well, made good bowling changes, um, set good fields. He was rewarded with a leg-side trap, um, courtesy of a, a Stuart Broad uh, delivery, which was caught by Jimmy Anderson at leg slip late in the day, which kind of gave them that last bit of hope. They had four wickets to get, and the game was kind of drifting off. Broad gets that wicket. Yeah, and, and, and that was Rassi van der Dassen, who was, who was trying yeah. to play the, the Faf to Plessis role from Adelaide 2012. Yep. 17 off 140 balls for van der Dassen, <laughs> and, and he nearly got them there. You know, the, when, when he was batting with Quentin de Kock, you know, 50 off 107 for, for de Kock until he just had a brain snap. He got a bad ball and tried to launch it over the infield. But with those two batting together, you're thinking, well, they're fine here. They've only got, and they only had about, what, 15 more overs to get through. Yeah. And then they were into uh, the final hour. Yeah, I mean it was it was past the drinks break, um, and, and into that final hour before that, you know, Broad gets that wicket, and then then it's the, um, the Stokes, Stokes intervention. It's always Stokes, isn't it? He he said yeah. after play that he told Joe Root he was going to bowl till the end. I mean, you know, it's just classic Ben Stokes, isn't it? He's just you know hitting the radar at 90 mile an hour so 145 clicks in the final spell of the day after you know playing five days of test cricket on what was by then a, a dead track yet he finds the outside edge in consecutive deliveries the second of which a brilliant catch by Crawley at third slip having to parry it down with one hand on his back catching it with the other um, Crawley who made 25 in the second innings but didn't really make it a big contribution he did so there so all the 22 mm. year olds at some point in the test were able to say they, they put their hand up and and made the win possible. And then he goes on, of course, to pick up the final wicket, which was Vernon Philander, who'd exchanged some words with Josh Butler um, earlier earlier in the afternoon. So it was a, a good finish, for, yeah. for a perfect finish for England. And Philander, who's been such a wonderful competitor for South Africa over the last decade, that's his last test at Cape Town, where he's you know routinely run a mark. He was brilliant on that first day um, for the umpteenth time, taking, I think it was four for 19 off 16 overs or something preposterous. So, um, yes, it was a one of those test matches, which I think will look back on you know in in generations to come and point to it and say that is the best of test cricket an undermanned England side at a venue where South Africa seldom lose they've only lost there you know I think the last time they lost to England there was 1957 it's a venue where only Australia had beaten them at since readmission before England did yesterday and uh, and an absolute joy to cover had an absolute ball watching it It was so much more exciting than what was going on at the SCG I assure you of that (laughs) And uh, I saw a bit of commentary around online saying, well, look at that result, look at that exciting finish. That That's going to guarantee that, you know, that puts the argument to bed about four-day test matches, except it doesn't um, because that argument's going to, uh, well, it, it's got people who are very prepared to push it along. Yeah, and we haven't got heaps of time today to go through it all, but let's just frame it up in a, look... Let's try and do this in a, in a respectful way because I think that everyone's got the interests of Test cricket at heart when they argue about this. I don't think that administrators... So there was one from South Africa yesterday, a prominent administrator. Of course, New Zealand have been pushing this case for a long time. I don't think... And, uh, and, I'm, and I don't know about other, I guess, quote-unquote, smaller countries. I don't want to belittle them, but as far as the, the amount of interest in Test cricket, they do fall into the, the smaller bracket. Or the amount of money the they've got to pay for it. Yeah, exactly. I, I respect that. And Dan Bredig has been arguing this line, saying that if you're a country that can't afford to host Test cricket, then four-day Test cricket is a is quite a logical sort of solution. And Dan got this going with with a story he broke for Crick Info, which reported that the ICC were, were looking at four-day Test cricket for the next round of the the World Test Championship. Kevin Roberts goes on radio on SEN and, and seems to sort of push the case. I mean, he he was measured, but 
for those reading between the lines, he, he certainly wasn't ruling it out. And, and, and he came back for a second interview and, and, and read out a bunch of statistics, would, which would suggest that CA are pretty keen on, on this as well for, for, I guess, different, probably sectional reasons, but we shouldn't really go into their motives yeah. too much. But alas, that, 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 that really put a, a fire under this discussion. And yeah, we've had a, a test match which, um, as Mike Atherton said, it's been a great advertisement for, for five-day test cricket. And I suppose, you know, again, I don't want to be disrespectful of, of those who are trying to argue the case on behalf of the smaller nations, but my personal view is that you don't get that wonderful third day um, I mentioned before where Sibley had to bunker down. Here's my main problem with four-day test cricket, philosophically. If you bat first and then you take a modest or, or any sort of lead into the third day. So let's say, um, you know, you bat for four sessions, the opposition bats for three, it's lunch on the third day, you've got roughly a 100-run lead. Mm. You're in a position in a four-day test match where you can only bat for two more sessions. You've got to declare. If you want yeah. to win, you've got to leave yourself at least a day. No one leaves themselves less than a day, which means that that hard-fought lead that you might have acquired over the first mm. seven, seven sessions of the test match, you've got to go, well, okay, well, we've just got to go for broken bat for declaration runs and yeah, run the it, risk it of getting rolled. It has to be gambled. Like you've got to, yeah. you've got to put that all to, on red and hope that it works out. Yeah, and if you get rolled for 100 in the second innings or even 150 or something like that, and that can easily happen when going for broke, then you've you've left a very gettable score for the, yeah. the side that doesn't really deserve to be in the test match until that point. And I think that's, that's something that I enjoy about test cricket. People uh, mm. criticise the meandering third innings declaration runs. I, 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 everybody hates that. But it's the cost of doing business if you want to um, give a comparative advantage to the side that's earned uh, their, their their place in the match over the first couple of days. I mean, you kind of you, mm. you give yourself that right if you've dominated day one and day two. You can take your time on day three and day four to give yourself the chance to bowl out the side on day four and day five. I don't think there's anything philosophically wrong with that. Um, but but equally, I, I appreciate that the counterpoint that if we want to give other teams around the world a better chance of having the financial clout to host Test cricket, they should mm. be entitled to to host them over four days. And Jeff. I'm keen on your thoughts on this. Uh, I'll put something to you which I haven't done off air. I think that the idea that the World Test Championship needs to pl- needs to be pay- played universally with four-day test cricket or five-day test cricket, I think that's flawed. I think what Tony Irish from the um, profession, from the um, from the players' union, the, the international players' union, said yeah. to that end, it should be one or the other. We have different conditions all over the world. We have different types of, uh, you know, uh, different am- amounts of overs uh, uh, able because of different weather conditions and different pitches and different climate and all the rest of it. I mean, if, if it means that some test matches have an available amount of overs that, that is spread over four days and some are spread over five days, I mean, why can't we allow different boards to make different decisions at different times in order to make sure that everyone kind of gets what they need out of this? I, I think the problem with that is when you've, you've got a competition based on what the results are, if you've got conditions which make a result of a draw much more likely and having less playing time, then is that too much of a variance? I mean, I I suppose you can also say that that can happen on a a really flat wicket, you know, if if a a country serves up some concrete pitches for the old 600 v 600 scores, but that hasn't (laughs) been happening much lately. That that isn't, that doesn't seem to be much of a contemporary problem in test cricket. But but, but it can, right? And we see with four-day county cricket, you do naturally prepare pitches with more in it in order to get a result. And if that flowed through, well, I guess what I'm saying is mandating it to be four days. And let's let's park that. Like I just don't see that being something that 
ticks the credibility box. And Mike Atherton wrote eloquently about this, as he always does last week, explaining that what does it actually add to the game, apart from saving dollars, not not a tremendous amount. So leave the five-day option there. And I, the other point I'd add to that is that we can intertwine it with the, the problems with the, the WTC, namely that different test matches are worth different, different amounts of points at the moment. To float another idea, I mean, why couldn't we say to, to boards... That's fine if you want to play a four-day test cricket. That's no dramas at all. But the minimum amount of test matches in a series for the WTC is three. In other words, you take away this ridiculous situation where some tests are worth 60 points and some are worth 24. With the Women's Championship, and I mentioned this on the BBC the other day and and seemed to get a bit of support, the the Women's Championship, if you play four or five one-dayers, the first three count to ICC points in their World Championship. So why couldn't we say, well, look, the Ashes have played over five test matches, three of them pre-designated, three of them also count for WTC points, and two of them don't. It won't reduce, it won't diminish the ashes by doing that the ashes will still be yeah but i think again you'll you'll run into problems because a lot of these things a lot of what they've done with the world test championship sounds reasonable until an anomaly makes it look stupid and what's going to make it look stupid is when um a team is leading 2-0 in a series and the other team roars back to to win the series 3-2 and they end up taking a massive points deficit out because only one of their wins counts despite the fact that they've recorded one of the greatest ever Test Series victories, you know, that kind of thing. No, no, that, that, that's a very fair point. I mean, I think, I'm not saying this is perfect. It requires a bit of compromise and a bit of broader thinking, but if we want the World Test Championship to be um, credible, I think that it needs to be played. All the series need to be the same as far as the amount of games played. Because yeah. like what we saw in the Ashes where England and Australia were playing for essentially 24 points, while India were clocking double that for beating Bangladesh at home. That, that doesn't marry up. But I think, yeah. you know, if... I'm not saying this is perfect. I don't want people to say, you know, um, this isn't sort of silver bullet stuff, but the women's, it works pretty well, I reckon, where they've played four or five one-day series and they go, well, these are the three that count for points and the other two are part of your broader series. Look at the series where there are more than three tests currently played. Um, Australia, India, uh, England, India, Australia, England, South Africa, Australia, South Africa, England. That's not five anymore. Series. South Africa, Australia is three next time. Right, sorry, right you are. So there's four series across the across the two-year cycle which even get this treatment. All the rest of them are played over three. Yeah. So what, does it really reduce the Border Gavaskar Trophy if, as played over four tests, um, three of them are for, for points and one isn't? The, 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 the trophy itself is still worth so much to mm. these teams. Likewise, the Ashes earn it. Who thought too much about the World Test Championship points when Australia was playing at Manchester and Leeds in the Oval this year? It was all about the Ashes earn, right? Yeah. So I think there's a way of threading the needle on this where we can use four-day test cricket to help bolster the case for three-test series in countries that otherwise wouldn't do it. If so, if for if 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 accepting four day cricket was a guarantee to get three tests in a series, then yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'd be more inclined to support it, but I don't think it would because the the objective for some of those supporting it is about saving time. Apparently, won't this be great because it'll take take time out of the calendar and, and make it yep. easier to to sync up a test match with a week. But you know what will happen if there's more time in the calendar? They'll just add other games into it. You know, <laughs> the calendar's jammed by choice. It's not it's not an accident that that every you know cricket um, sort of major cricket playing country has has their teams travelling the world you know 320 days of the year playing cricket that's that's by design and so one of the main arguments for 
the four-day test doesn't stand up on that basis, and the other one being that it costs too much to stage a five-day test. That's solvable by having proper funding for countries that need it, for, for countries that aren't obscenely wealthy and, and that don't make most of the money. Mm. They're not being funded properly. Ireland's having to cancel test matches because they're not being funded well enough. That's an issue that is very solvable by funding them properly. So I, I just think that the, the reasons being given for it have answers elsewhere, and we don't really have time to, to go into it much more today, but the two things that really don't stack up is they currently can't bowl 90 overs in a day, so how the hell are they going to bowl 98 in whatever amount of time that they've got? You know, extending the playing day indefinitely doesn't work because you can't start too early because of dew and conditions and you can't go too late because of darkness and, and rain and all the rest of it. And so if I could see teams actually get through their 90 overs in a day, then I'd be more inclined to think it was possible. But those proposing it haven't even shown that that's possible yet. Yeah, Andrew Sampson uh, said that uh, the average overs bowl per day in the 2010s was was 79. So right. and that accounts for rain and for slow overs, by the way. So you've got to remember that the cricket's a game that's often affected by things out of our control, that being rain. So and bad light, but but especially bad rain. light so, and, and potentially smoke now is going. Yeah, to and smoke. It's going to smoke. disrupt matches. Absolutely, but yeah, I think you look if if we could. Yeah, I think we need to view four-day test cricket in the context of fixing the championship more generally. They always said, the ICC, they always said they'll tweak it for the second edition. Well, let's do rid of these two test series. And if you want to play them condensed using four-day test cricket, well, I'm not going to lose any sleep. So long as there's a provision for countries that wish to play five-day test cricket. And look, let's be realistic. That's probably England, Australia... India, I, I acknowledge that it's going to be the bigger nations, fine, like whatever Like I wish it wasn't that way but there's a degree of realism that needs to be applied to this that isn't eliminated purely because we are rushing towards trying to shorten the game, the arguments about um, third innings declaration runs are boring and so forth I have no time for that as I mentioned before Like this is, you know, you're allowed to build your advantage in a test match, you shouldn't have to give that up in order to expedite a result or, or put yourself at risk in the process Look, that's a, that, I don't think that holds but the other, idea, the, the other point about trying to give poorer boards the chance. Jerry Kimber, um, our, our friend and colleague, I should say, um, who turned 40 yesterday, and um, if not for Jared's trailblazing uh, work on the freelance circuit a generation before you and I, Jeff, it's unlikely that we ever would have had the chance to have done what we do for a living. So thanks to Jared and, and happy birthday to him. But he made your point that the ICC have had a number of um, tools at their disposal before to um, to try and even out the playing field and they've elected not to use them. So um, why should this be the, the one that is just reflexively reached to next? Yeah, and if, you know, the, the other thing being you need really good result pitches to get through a, a match in four days and, and we often don't have those. So mm. if you can show me a world where there are great fast-paced, fast-moving cricket wickets prepared around the world and everybody's getting through 90 overs in a day, then then maybe the, the four-test, <laughs> uh, the four-day test makes a bit more sense. But until that time, uh, I'm afraid it does not. We're almost out of time, Adam, so we've got to hit our nerd pledge. Let's do it. Um, before we reach the end of the segment, it is Nerd Pledge. It's the game that people play on our patron page where they support the show by sending us an amount of money that correlates to a cricket statistic. Uh, not everybody does that. Some people uh, don't, don't like this frivolity and they just send us a, a classic normal <laughs> amount and we are very grateful for those two because they just want to support the show and we love and cherish them. Andy Morehouse is one of those. I assume that that's someone who you contacted to get an extension because then you have more house. <laughs> 
Um, Rebecca oh, Marsh has, has jumped in, no relation, I'm sure. Uh, Sam Redfern has uh, has come through. The um, It was named after the suburb in Sydney. Uh, parents were big fans. And Sean Moynihan has also subscribed to the pod to support us. So thank you, Sean, Sam, Rebecca, Andy. Appreciate you getting on board. Uh, in terms of the Nerd Pledge numbers, the first off our list today is Gary Murphy with $3.29. What does $3.29 mean to you, Adam? Well, the obvious thing is that Michael Clark made 329 in the test match, so I don't think we have to go too much further on that, Jeff. I, I mean, I'd be surprised if it wasn't that. Simon O'Donnell was the 329th test cricketer for Australia um, mm-hmm. back in 1985 when he played those um, Ashes test matches in England. Uh, I, I, I saw a great clip from our old friend Simon Wallace on Twitter today where Simon O'Donnell, he, he called O'Donnell, I should say, not O'Donnell, Simon O'Donnell, called wonderfully the Darren Goff hat-trick. I completely forgot about that. He was the guy behind the mic on Channel 9 when, uh, mm. when, when Darren Goff um, took three in a row in, uh, in the New Year's test of 1999. But look, I think realistically it's going to surely be Michael Clark. 3.29 not out on that, uh, in that pink test. That famous Sydney match made a double hundred the next week um, in Adelaide as well. That was when India were bowling like a busted ass, and it was Ishan Sharma before he remembered how to bowl. How, how good has it been in the last couple of years watching Ishan Sharma suddenly turn back into a magnificent bowler? He's amazing, isn't he? I, I, I couldn't agree more. Ishan Sharma has been integral to the, that, that pace attack and what they've been able to do, so um, I'm glad they get to run. Uh, thank you, Gary Murphy. Uh, next on the list is Andy Kirkwood. Andy Kirkwood has come through with 229, and, and this is a number dear to your heart, my heart, and <laughs> Andrew Sampson's heart. And Rick Finlay actually was heartbroken um, during the, the Sydney test, the recent one uh, just gone, Rick Finlay, the ABC statistician, because when Manus went past 200, Rick was saying, come on, get to 229, get to 229, and then either declare or get out, please. And Manus fell short on 215, and Rick was devastated, <laughs> I can tell you that. Because what is it, Adam? It's, of course, the highest score not made in Well, the lowest score not history. made. The lowest, that's better. The lowest yes. score not made in <laughs> In, in Test Cricket. So, uh, yeah, we, we, we've mentioned that quite a few times on the show, haven't we? So I'm glad they get to run. Uh, um, and and uh, who was that um, patron? Sorry, I missed the name. Andy Kirkwood. Andy, thank you so much. That's very kind of you. And I'm glad uh, we ticked that one off. Which is which is a pretty badass name because it rhymes with Mirkwood, which is the place in The Hobbit that's full of giant spiders and uh, is pretty terrifying. <laughs> it's also um, Bob Cowper's, uh, Bob Cowper's um, uh, uh, test cap number, which, of course, Cowper got a healthy run in the media um, when David Warner made his triple hundred capper, of course, making 309 uh, in an Ashes tests back in 1965, 66, I think it was. So, yes, nicely done. Uh, you had a correction in from Twitter, didn't you, from Paul Harmer, who's... Oh, I did, I did, I like this. ...a few weeks ago. Yeah, so 214, for the life of me, I can't remember what we said 214 was. But, I think we um, said Trumper? It was a Trumper thing, was it right? Yeah, no, of yeah, course it was. Just it was Trumper, Trumper made 214. Yeah, we, we, we assumed Trumper, and then we... Um, and then he, he, he... This is lovely, the way he's done it. So he's gone, no, it relates to something that I have close to my heart, and he... In the tweet, I don't have it in front of me, but he mentioned the number 20. Now, there's 20 Australian men who've made 100 on debut, which indeed is something I talk about a lot. In terms of hundreds on debut, um, Matthew Sinclair made 214 on debut. It was the last mm-hmm. century of the previous 
millennium, I suppose. It was the Boxing Day test of uh, 1999 against the West Indies. He, he made 214 on debut and he said, no, 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 it's not that, but it's close. And I've worked out what it must be. It's Greg Blewett's highest score, 214, who, of course, is one of those 20. He made 100 on debut in 94-95 after uh, making his way to prominence via the Australia A-team. Keep your eye on your podcast feed for some more on that sometime soon. Uh, and, uh, and of course, went on to make 214 against South Africa in 1997. So um, that, that must be the link, 214. And our last one for the day, we've got about 20 others on the back burner. So if you're wondering where yours is, it will come through. We do them in chronological order. We'll get there in the, the next few weeks. Our last one is from Scott, no last name. And it is, I think this is an edit, actually. He'd already uh, put one through uh, and has now changed it to something else that's taken his fancy, which is $5.27. $5.27 to me sounds like bowling figures. Five four twenty seven. Yeah, Any when Pato turned it. Yeah, Pato on debut turning it on was 5 for 27 when he was bowling um, out swingers at 155 clicks. I'd just say, Jeff, did you... I don't know if Australian viewers were so lucky to see this, so you might have missed it, but it was certainly on the feed, the global feed that I was watching on, mm. on BT. Um, b- before day five, or day before, day, day four, sorry, day four, the final day of the test, James mm. Pattinson... <laughs> James Pattinson picked up Justin Langer from behind, grabbing him by the arms like a professional wrestler, so um, threading, threading his arms through Langer's arms, pulling him up in the air and sprinting around in circles with a huge smile, like a maniac, like a professional wrestler. <laughs> It was just magic from Pato. You could, you, and, and, you, and you would have seen that Pattinson also, um, at one point when they were walking out to field, I think it was on day two, they were walking out to field, and he saw the spider cam about 60 metres away, and he started sprinting at the spider cam, like waving his arms in front of it. I mean, you, you can't not want an Australian team with James Pattinson. We need him in every Australian. I don't mind if he's 12th man occasionally to, to manage his workload and all the rest of it, but... Um, Yes, yeah, so the spice of life. He's an absolute gem. So, if, Pato five for twenty seven on debut. If he had jumped onto it, that would have been amazing. <laughs> he just like leapt up and caught onto it and said, "Give me a ride. Take take me around the stadium." He's the everything, um, isn't he? He well, really well, is the you, everything. You, you, you'll be pleased by this because it's not just James Pattinson on debut. It's James Pattinson on second debut as well. When he came back at the end of twenty fifteen in Hobart against the West Indies, oh yeah, he also second cleaned dig. up with five for twenty seven. Yeah, and when they followed on, that was one of the rare times that the follow-on uh, has been enforced in, in recent years. And, uh, yeah, he did. He cleaned up. And we, we kind of thought then that he was right, good to go. He was going to play a long, a long stretch of test cricket. That, that didn't last, but good to have him back. Well, and nine other uh, men in t- men's test cricket have taken 527s. Terra Turner was in there in 1888. Warwick Armstrong in 1909. So there's a, a, a bit of a, an Ashes strength to it as well. Alec Betzer, Fred Truman, a few others in there. Um, so, but Pattinson is the only one who's on there twice. The only double five. And the only and the only one who's been on the final word. So therefore, he gets the he gets the nod. Well, he absolutely gets the nod because you know why would you possibly go anywhere else? And and Debbie Wilson <laughs> as well uh, for Australia took five for twenty seven against India yep. in a Test match in nineteen ninety one. So those are your five for twenty sevens. But we're going with with. Pattinson on this occasion. That's it for Nerd Pledge this week. If you want to play the game, you go to our patron page. It's patron.com slash the final word and you spell the word patron with an E in the middle for some reason. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the final word. Uh, jump on there, check it out, see what other people have done and uh, get involved. 
Uh, Jeff, before we go to the break and come back with a, a, a quick chat, we, we should explain the person who we're going to talk about because we don't really intro him when we when we interviewed him last week. That's true. It's That's a, true. It's a man. Uh, it's a man by the name of Sunny Mun. Uh, Jeff, do you want to have a crack at trying to explain where Sunny Mun fits into the into our world? Sunny Mun, the man, the myth, the legend. I, I met Sunny in 2015. Was it end of end of 2015 when yep. he was operating the um, the. the the scoreboard animations and the sight screen animations at test grounds, you, you'd known him for quite a bit longer than I had. Uh, and we interviewed him in our earlier incarnation on the ABC when we would do uh, Facebook videos at the end of play. We interviewed him on the day at the Wacker when the sight screen broke down for 17 minutes and uh, it, it was not a good day for a lot of people involved in the sight screen industry, put it that way. So we, we, we jumped on camera with Sonny and um, safe to say that, that some around the place at Cricket Australia were not very happy about this and we yeah. nearly all got sacked but you know somehow yeah, we, we kept we, carrying on. We nearly lost our accreditation, he nearly lost his job uh, but yeah I, I first met Sonny I don't know probably well over 10 years ago now I think the first test match I went to him was in 2010 at the Wacker when Mitchell Johnson ran a mark and he's one of the genuinely funniest people I've ever known in my life. He doesn't use social media or any of that. He's a he's an old-fashioned fellow with old-fashioned values and a, a very big brain. Um, if you if you were to Google him and do your research, you'll see he's mm. been on television at, at various times for various things, including famously on Australia's Got Talent uh, or The X Factor or one of those types of shows. Um, and uh, and you know if you. Google a little bit further, you'll see that for for a period of his life, he was um, one of the. He, he used to make money in London, being subjected to science experiments. <laughs> he used to uh, <laughs> go around, <laughs> go around um, uh, helping the. I guess it was the pharmaceutical industry and what what they do. So, um, but no, he now is very much ensconced in in the cricket family. Uh, and he's if, if for those who uh, have been watching Fox Cricket, you, you'll have seen him uh, a couple of weeks ago bob up as an actor in the David Warner commercial, <laughs> which I thought. Geez, if he's doing TV work, he can come back on the final word. Yeah, well, he, he can and he will. But the things you'll find, yeah, there's the medical experiments article. There, there's the clip from TV where he has he's wearing a helmet made of Mentos and he dunks his head into a bowl full of Coca-Cola, um, <laughs> which goes about as well as you'd expect. The, the list of things is, is long and strange. And then yeah, a few weeks ago, I was playing a pub cricket match in Melbourne and I drove up to the Oval and parked just a little bit late. As you might not be surprised to know, um, the other team were, were batting. We were in the field and out in the middle at the crease with the bat in hand wearing a pair of batting gloves, a pair of shorts and nothing else. No shirt, no pads, no shoes. <laughs> was Sonny Munn <laughs> lumping sixes into the pavilion and not worrying yeah. about the sand shoe crushers. So, look, yeah. he, he shows up where you least expect him. He's a fantastic cricketer at Edinburgh Cricket Club as well. I mean, over the years, he's, I think he's played in all the grades and been a really long-term servant of them. Uh, Shannon Gill, who we've had on the show before, um, just to put a full stop on, trying to give some context around Sonny, uh, remembers one time playing pub cricket against him and he was wearing a Leonard Copeland Melbourne Tigers singlet from the mid-90s. So, you know, <laughs> what, what more could you want on the man? And we're going to make sure that, as we say when we're talking to him, we're going to check in with Sonny Mann periodically through 2020 and, and get him back as a, a regular fixture of the final word. We will do our best. All right, let's uh, go to a break, and after that, we'll have Sunny Mun. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to my favourite podcast, The Final Word.
Jeff, I've loved having future talent sports cards with us through the last couple of months, and they're with us through January as well as we work towards presentation uh, night season. We said the last few weeks that this is the perfect time to get involved uh, because, as we keep saying over and over again, participation trophies are garbage. They end up in recycling or the bin. They're uniformly rubbish. They're always the last thing the cricket club thinks about for their juniors or indeed their seniors if, if the club does give trophies out to their senior players on Prezo night. But there is such a better alternative. It's through Future Talent com.au with Heath Evans. They've made cards of the final word, as we said, around our live shows late last year. Um, they're a wonderful option. Take it away, Jeff. Tell us why people should get on board. Well, actually, I want to tell you why presentation trophies are terrible, because they're always... They're like that junky, gross plastic stuff that gets spray-painted with gold. Yeah. And do you know what... There's, so there's an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer where there's, like, a, a witch who used to be a cheerleader at high school and she's determined to make sure her daughter becomes a cheerleader to, to live fully the life that she was never quite able to, to live because she had the daughter too young and she's, she's become angry and so she's learned magic and she's cursing all the cheerleaders on the team so that her daughter can get onto the team. And, and in the end, there's a magic fight and she has to get banished. Like her, her spirit gets locked up somewhere and, and they, you know, they ask the, the daughter witch, where did you lock her up? And she says, oh, don't worry, she's, she's safe. And the last shot is, is like the cheerleading presentation trophy that's, that's in the cabinet at the school and you zoom in and you can see the eyes are moving. She's in there. She's trapped inside the presentation trophy. So if you don't want a witch stuck inside your <laughs> presentation trophy or if you don't want, by a twist of fate, to yourself be stuck inside your presentation trophy for the rest of your life, for God's sake, get a football card instead. Uh, get your but, club to do it. Um, get, get one for every member on the team to keep them safe from magic. All you need to do is give them a photo and some information on each player. It'll be something that I have no doubt that your junior players especially will absolutely love. They'll be grateful for you making the effort to go the extra mile. And, of course, it'll be cheaper as well. These aren't expensive products. Um, they go about a buck a card, futuretalent.com.au. And also, for being a final word listener, you get a 15% discount by putting in the final word at checkout. They've got a five-star rating on Facebook, a five-star rating on Google. As we've said, we've already got our own from the final word, the Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins card. I've got mine uh, put up here at home, much to the chagrin of my aforementioned partner who thinks it's quite self-indulgent because I bloody love it. And I'm sure you're the same, Jeff. It's quite a thing having your own footy card made up. You, you collect them as a kid. You, you, you play off against your schoolmates for them, whether it's footy cards or cricket cards, you can collect them. Um, we're going to make a collection of final word cards in 2020 as well. It's a wonderful product. We're so proud to be um, allied with uh, futuretalent.com.au. Heath Evans is a great friend of ours and um, he's been running this operation for 10 years now. Um, they've been going great guns through the partnership with The Final Word. So if you're thinking about presentation night now, and you would be now that we're into January, strongly consider jumping on, dropping him a note on the website, get your cards made up, you will not regret it. The Final Word is in association with futuretalent.com.au and we're very proud to be so. Hi, I'm Isha Gua and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin.
So final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. And we thought we'd bring in a bloke who was part of the final word community some years ago, four summers ago to to be precise. Um, We we all nearly lost our jobs together when we um, got Sonny Munn uh, to talk to us, uh, the man we're about to interview right now after play, um, when the scoreboard, not the scoreboard, the sight screen broke down at the Wacker Ground uh, where um, Sonny was tangentially um, involved in in making the thing run. Um, and, And he told us all about it wearing his Cricket Australia cap and told us who were working for the ABC at the time and all told it didn't really work out too well for any of us but it was a was a, a memorable moment uh, in in our early fledgling days uh, working in cricket and and Sonny we've, we've got you on because your career continues to move a pace in in recent times thanks for coming back to the final word. Mate it's an absolute treat to be back to be honest you know, I think the, the statutes of limitations have finally been lifted so I can speak freely and uh, without any sort of recriminations creeping up on me. So thanks for having me. Yeah, you've kept your job there for the last four summers, so you still travel uh, around the country uh, making sure that the the right signs appear on the right parts of the ground uh, at the right time and and so on. So you're kind of living... People say that Jeff and I, we're living the dream job in that we're we're, we're covering the cricket and and, and so on, and we certainly feel that. Uh, but, But really, I mean, you've got prime position uh, and what your job is to do is to watch every single ball of every single international played around the country that's not a bad not a bad gig either well it's amazing that you say every ball all in one place because i've actually jumped ship to the greater uh, umbrella of fox cricket so i'm now actually employed at fox <laughs> cricket so i did uh, the sight screen stuff at the start of the summer and now i'm uh, straight on 501 boys every ball all in one place <laughs> well, that's kind of why I thought we'd get you on today, just briefly, just to just to check in with you. We might do this uh, periodically as we work through 2020, because we, we we saw you pop up on a Fox Cricket ad last week, which featured a young David Warner at well, a Christmas party or something or another, and and smacking a pinata and you hitting the deck, and 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 there's this uh, long haired fella called uh, Sonny Munn, who we're all familiar with, uh, the star of the show. Yeah, the one, it's sort of, uh, so everyone in that ad, all the adults are all Fox Cricket employees, Fox Cricket where you can see every ball all in one place. And uh, the cynics among us at that was the budgetary restraint that we just got everyone in the, the hallowed all of the Fox to actually act, inverted commas, in it. But uh, you got that much talent in the, background, in the backyard, you know, you don't have to look over the fence. So we're all just part of the same community, mate. So are you on a commission basis to sign people up or is it more like a threat to your kneecaps if you don't bring in a certain quota every, every employee every month? <laughs> no, they, uh, they actually, I had to check my kneecaps in at the door and I'm contractually obliged to leave them there until I mention that you can see every ball all in one place. Um, yeah, it was, uh, the, the ad's a weird one though because I'm not mired in the world of social media and apparently it's been getting a bit of traction on that. So uh, thankfully that sort of... Serpico era Pacino hungover look isn't uh, isn't popping up on my screen anytime soon. So, Sonny, you mentioned that you aren't really connected in the social media world, and, and that's true. You're an elusive fellow. If people were to to Google your name, that they'd see a whole a whole weird and wonderful world of, of things you've been up to uh, throughout your adult life. But um, that, that, that's a, that's an interesting uh, an interesting little little part of your story that you completely stay away from social media completely. We, we don't see you bob up anywhere. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sort of like trying to catch smoke in the night with a net, mate. I'm actually running from the law, so if you could keep it dark, I'd really appreciate it. (laughs) 
Uh, Sonny, I know. The, I remember the first Test match that you and I went to get went to together in in two thousand and ten at the Wacker, um, the ground we were talking about before. Um, we we went back and uh, were watching a, a, an old video of uh, a one day international played at the Gabba in, in the early nineties, and and there. Uh, uh, and there we see you sprinting onto the ground at the end. I don't know if you're pulling up a stump or whatever it was. So, I mean, you grew up in Queensland and uh, and obviously loved the game forever. So this is like a dream job for you working at Fox Cricket. Oh, for sure, mate. Honestly, you know, it's amazing you reminded me of that because that was one of the greatest early memories of the sort of the cruel vicissitudes of cricket. I was on the boundary road to gather in the Greyhound track and Dean Jones, who was my idol, turned around to any of you kids got any chewy. And I threw in some juicy fruit and I thought, how good is this? I'm just in Dino's pocket, tight. And then about two balls later, he spat it out. And I thought, fucking hell, Dino. Well, I'm right here, mate. You're killing me. <laughs> but, uh, no, it's an absolute treat to be here, mate. It's, uh, it's a place to be where you can see every ball in one place. So are you telling us that Dino was not a juicy fruit fan? He was a, a PK brings the freshness burst that refreshes your breath PK I, man. I think it's more that the juicy fruit was, uh, there's a reason it's not on the market anymore. It sort of turned to rubber after about two deliveries. So <laughs> I'd like to think it was the product and not the person. If he was fair to him about being as Australian as can be, he would have been the Liz Smiley extra brand, uh, Dino, in that, in that day and age. Yeah, I always thought it was a bit cruel of Liz, who had a bit of a, a speech impediment that they made her say her name and the word extra repeatedly. It was uh, very cruel of her <laughs> and the camera person, the operator. So, Sonny, what can we expect in terms of uh, from you? Uh, are we going to see you in front of the camera again anytime soon, or, or is your job going to be uh, behind the scenes on the tools? I like to think not. I've actually, bizarrely enough, the title of my role here is Chief of Staff, which sounds pretty important. But I'm oh, hail to the Chief. Oh, I know, I know. A lot of Indians that need wrangling, but there's a lot of false gravitas for that title. quite factitious, really, but what it says on the name tag so bugger it I'm running with it so I think uh, I think I'll just sit behind the camera where you can see every ball all in one place and uh, and not get my mug out in front of it anymore hey, a little bit about that Warner ad here's something a little nugget for the DVD commentary extra that kid Please. and say what you want about the uh, deplorable acting the kid is an absolute ringer veritable ringer for a young dad Warner so you've got to give it up for the, <laughs> the casting crew but um, he was actually right handed so half the day was spent teaching him switching, just sort of keeping him in tune with young David Warner. He pummeled the bloody thing. Have you had a chance to sit down with old David Warner and, and uh, get his thoughts on the ad and how he feels he was represented? I haven't, uh, I haven't crossed paths with him, but I think it's, look, there's a few universal truths, you know. All pilots sound the same, warm smiles are often returned, and men the world over argue about how to cook a barbecue. But there's another one that everything looks grouse in super slow mode. So, if in doubt, whack something and put it in slow motion. On, on that note, Sonny, we'll, we'll leave it there. But if you want to see your face uh, in front of the camera, uh, the advert is running on uh, 501, uh, Fox Cricket. We're seeing you time and time again with a young David Warner. And as I said, I, I, we look forward to checking in with you throughout the course of 2020. Mate, I look forward to being back where you can see every ball all in one place. Hey, just before I do go, <laughs> and you can cut this if you want, but Colo, have you heard about the antics of your slovenly shoot ginger podcast cohort the last time we faced up in a, in a game of cricket a few weeks back. Uh, please go on. Yeah, has he divulged this? Oh, mate, it was the, the, the sort of, I'll use the term loosely, tactics that he adopted were absolutely deplorable. <laughs> he, came, he came out to bat looking like bloody Robocop ready for battle, 
in a game of pub cricket where, keep in mind, there is no LBW rule. So the laws of cricket have changed slightly. He faces up, both feet facing straight back, back past the bowler. These are me, your humble narrator, sort of French cricket style. Except in French cricket, you tend to use the bat. He then proceeded to shin the ball away from the base of middle for an entire over in what can only be described as an affront to the glorious game that we all love. And the, the only shot he played in that over was the very first ball because it was a free hit and he got out. <laughs> Defend yourself, Jeffy Le Mans. Well, Sonny, before Jeff answers, I'll, I'll just add, Sonny, that the last time that we watched Jeff bat and the last time we, we engaged with Jeff with the blade in hand, he was being coached by Mike Hussey. So, Jeff, you've you got to explain yourself double over. How, does, how is it that you went from uh, being told by Mike Hussey how to play a cover drive to now not being able to even hold the bat and, and well, being reduced to this? Look, I, I did hold the bat. I just held it aloft. Um, and, you know, there's a slight exaggeration. I didn't kick away six balls. I think it was two. Um, you know, a couple down the leg side and a couple missed the off stump. But did you did you play a stroke apart from the free hit that you were dismissed on? N- you were under oath. Not really against you, but look, that was because you could have come out there with a bloody piece of rope, mate. It wouldn't have made a difference. I, horrible, Adam. I, I stand for it. I arrived at the ground and Sonny Munn was batting a shirtless, helmetless padless and shoeless. He was in bare feet. Um, he had a pair of gloves on. That was the only bit of protective equipment he had. And he was, you know, carting sixes over long on. Then when it's our turn to bat, he's he's steaming into bowl with, with the hair flying. And I just thought, I cannot get out to Sonny Munn. That, I will never live that down. I've just got to get through this over. And so a couple of wicked in-swingers, I, I just went with the pad first um, to, to let him know that he couldn't get through my defences. But, you know, I played a few no shots shame, after that when he no came on. No shame in being dismissed. No shame in getting out, Jeff. There is a great deal of shame attached to the way you approach that game. And whilst the mighty Vic Hotel up the Vic Club rest might not have come on the winning side that day against Dan O'Connell, there was there was a greater loss, and that was to the sport of cricket itself because it was quite. I was there was blood streaming from the eyeballs. You, you shin those away. I've never been able to hit the pegs. I finally get two on target, and you just done a little dosey do with the ankle. What, what I liked was the way that you appealed because for a second you forgot you had that booming in swinger. It, it, it was plumb in front of middle, and you just went around to the umpire thinking, "I have got this," and then remembered, "Wrong game, wrong game." No, it was that plum that the bales nearly came off. The thing with my appeal, if you listen carefully, I wasn't saying how's that, I was saying what is that? <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> oh, I'll tell you what. Right, I'll let you boys go. I've got to go back to five up and where you can see every ball all in one place. Thanks, Sonny. Thanks, Sonny Man. We'll talk to you soon, mate. Love your work. Have a great year. G'day guys, this is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Leon. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Thank you to Sonny Munn for coming on the show. Thanks to Bad Producer, our production company. Thanks to everyone who has uh, contributed on Nerd Pledge and our friends at Wisden of Cricket Monthly and Future Talent. And thanks, Adam. Well, thank you. Why not? You've been there. <laughs> and thank you, Jeff. Yes, we've got to wrap it up quickly because I've got to get to the hospital for an appointment with the midwife. So um, that, that's, uh, that's got to take first priority rather than uh, spending 10 or 15 minutes wrapping up the Sunny Chat. I'm 
sure we could, but we could do it all again next week, as we will every week through January. I'll be with Daniel Norcross, uh, the, the commentator from BBC Test Match Special that promises to be eventful. We've got a couple of interviews in the can as well, Jeff. So even though you'll be away enjoying some precious time away from the game, the final work continue as it always does. Well, yeah, my voice might be there here and there in some parts, but uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll be resting up and I'm looking forward to listening in and seeing what you guys come up with. I'll see everybody else in a few weeks' time. Thanks for listening. This has been The Final Word. Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins signing. Bye. I had to go.